The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Dr. Cassandra Mariel. A lifelong explorer and outdoors woman, Cassandra completed her PhD in geology and planetary science and exploration from the Institute for Earth and Space Exploration at Western University, where she studied meteorite impact craters in the Canadian Arctic. She also has considerable analog mission experience, which are simulated robotic and human missions designed to learn, train, and prepare for real missions to the moon and Mars. In her most recent expedition, she helped to train two astronauts in field geology in preparation for upcoming missions to the moon. In her current role as science advisor for the Canada Aviation and Space Museum in Ottawa, Cassandra is dedicated to sharing her passion and knowledge of Earth and planetary sciences with communities near and far, as well as acting as liaison and collaborator between the museum, academia, industry, and government to connect the greater community of science and technology. I truly could not be more excited to have her join me today. Welcome, Dr. Cassandra Marielle. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Laura. Thank you so much for making the time for us, and we will jump right on in. How did you get your start in aviation and aerospace? So growing up, you know, I I always loved space. I I actually quite enjoyed aviation as well, but I, you know, I looked up to the stars. I was a complete Trekkie, but a career in aerospace didn't occur to me. You know, I, I was kind of in my small town bubble, wasn't really exposed to many scientists or engineers or pilots. Um, and so. I I went through high school loving science and math and I loved the outdoors. I was an avid paddler. And then, so I just, you know, I kind of went the natural direction. I got an undergrad degree in geology, which is kind of the outdoor science. You know, I'm I'm a bit of a a rock geek, if you will. But I first caught my space bug uh, when I started my, my master's degree in Newfoundland. Um, You know, I started as a regular geologist after my undergrad, and then I got this idea, I want to do my master's degree. And so I wrote a letter, an email to a series of professors across the country saying, hey, do you have any cool geology projects? I'm looking to start a master's. And I got a bunch of responses back. And by far the coolest was, hey, do you want to go to Northern Labrador and research this impact crater? Um, So I jumped in. And then, you know, from then on, I loved it. I loved impact cratering geology. And I loved all of the the connections that it had to the space agency and that research that project was funded by the Canadian Space Agency um, which is really not common in the geology usually you're funded by some kind of mining industry or or research uh, organization and so uh, the rocks at the crater that I was studying are uh, known as a, a lunar analog they're very similar to the rocks on the moon so I was studying an impact crater in like moon rocks, but on the earth. And, and so that was where the initial connection began. And then, you know, I just stayed on that impact crater, uh, crater train. Uh, and then from that point on, I started signing up, you know, I just loved space rocks and them together. So I started signing up to all sorts of things. I, I began taking part in uh, space simulations, we call them analog missions. So the first one I did was an analog mission uh, where I was an analog astronaut living in the Mars Desert Research Station in Ottawa for two weeks, uh, simulating 
living on Mars. I was the crew geologist. Uh, and soon after that, you know, after my degree, I took a job managing running analog missions for Western University that were, again, simulating these missions is robotic missions and human missions to, to Moon and Mars. You know, you'd send a crew out in the field and they would pretend to be either astronauts or you'd have real rover or pretend rover. And then you'd have a mission control back at the university um, and it would be a full scale mission. And um, that was just, you know, one or two of, of many that followed. And I just kind of stayed on that space train and have been riding it ever since. Um, but my first uh, non, like from the aviation side of things, I got exposure as a, as a field geologist going on these big expeditions in the Arctic, in Arctic Canada. Um, I got a lot of exposure to bush pilots and helicopters. And so I did, I did get to sort of dabble in um, being around the aviation industry a little bit. So when you're, when you're in the middle of the nowhere, there's no cargo crew to help unload the plane. So the geologists, you know, we're right alongside the pilots loading and unloading gear, we're rolling fuel drums, we're driving ATVs up into the cabin. Um, and then, you know, from, to move a camp from one side of the crater that has been filled with a lake to the other side of the crater, uh, we had to long line our gear. And so I had to learn how to, you know, hook a long line over into the loop on the bottom of a helicopter that's hovering over my head, you know, decide how much weight can go in the long line, how much, how many twin otters do I have to book to get all my gear and my people in. Um, so I did get to sort of dabble in aviation, but that really was the extent of it until I finally joined uh, the Canada Aviation Space Museum last year. So just sort of thinking again that, well, of course, obviously Newfoundland makes perfect sense being the rock. It is where you would go to have geological pursuits, but what were some of the other I guess, places and projects that you reached out to hoping to find out more about? Would they have been sort of exclusively along the Canadian Shield or would they have been in other parts of Canada as well? They were all over Canada. I One of the projects was in British Columbia. One of them, sort of the, the second place project was in New Brunswick, looking at, you know, melting in the mantle. Uh, it, they were completely different projects from, you know, ranged from sedimentary rocks to igneous rocks. They were, you know... They, they kind of spanned the range of geology. Um, I know and the, the space related one just caught my eye. And especially, you know, it wasn't just that. I actually said to my husband, because I narrowed it down to the two, I said, I really want to do this one, but this one seems really interesting too. Would you rather live in Newfoundland or New Brunswick? And he was like, that's an easy question. We're moving to Newfoundland. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, we obviously still care about New Brunswick on this podcast, but no, yeah, Newfoundland, I Newfoundland's way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time, right? So, um, he, he had grown up, you know, hearing stories of the rock. Um, so he really wanted to go there. But I've been, I've actually, while living in Newfoundland, I went to New Brunswick to do a lot of, uh, to do some geochemistry work in the university there. And it's a beautiful place. So I love New Brunswick too. So when we think of, to me, sort of like Canadian craters and locations in Canada that are related to sort of, I guess, or similar comparable to the lunar surface, I always think of Sudbury. And I think that goes back to the, the rumor around the time of, I guess it would have been in the 60s that they were training astronauts on what I now guess would be analog missions. And they were training them in the Sudbury area because it was so similar to the lunar surface and all the jokes about Sudbury being just sort of a desolate lunar surface. So uh, I will say I have done work at the Sudbury impact structure and that's not a rumor. Um, Apollo astronauts for Apollo uh, 15 and 16 did go to Sudbury to train. Um, and that's exactly what they did was an analog mission. They, they sort of were 
hooked up with a bunch of sort of moon-like instruments and some of the instruments that would be attached to their future spacesuits. And they were trained to do field geology with those, with those instruments for a couple of weeks. And they had a lot of Canadian geologists present um, helping them along. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Sudbury. I have fond memories of going there growing up, but it, it can look a little desolate. And a few years ago, I remember flying into the Sudbury airport uh, in a small aircraft and there were, uh, I guess there was big forest fires in Colorado and the smoke had carried all the way to Sudbury. And so when we arrived in Sudbury, there was sort of this orangey haze to the sky. I mean, we were fine. Nothing was being impacted, but it was almost orangey. So sort of having that atmospheric color and then the rocks below, I felt like we were landing on Mars as opposed to Sudbury or even the moon. Yep. Yep. For sure. But it's much changed now, you know, in the seventies, eighties, it kind of was black everywhere, but they, they've increased the height of the smokestacks and um, it's bounced back. Like there's vegetation everywhere. So that's, not it's different these days <laughs> it's no longer actually it's it's good and bad it's you know way better for the environment but it's actually more difficult to access the rocks because now they're covered in trees <laughs> yeah you don't think about how okay we've made these steps towards I guess sort of a better like a better environmental footprint for the city but yeah it's harder for the geologists now to do their work <laughs> yeah for sure now, we mentioned that you did your master's in Newfoundland and Labrador, but you also did your PhD in geology and planetary science and exploration. How did you decide to focus on the meteor impact craters in the Canadian Arctic after having been in Newfoundland and Labrador? Sure. So after, after my master's, um, I got a job at Western University uh, coordinating their space center at the time, which is now called um, the Institute for Earth and Space Exploration, which is where I ended up doing my PhD. But I, I worked for a couple of years there and I was managing Arctic field camps and I was managing these, these analog missions for them. And one of the craters that we went to um, during the, the research was the Houghton impact structure on Devon Island in the Canadian high Arctic. Um, and so that's, that's the crater I ended up doing my research on. And we also went to the Tuninit crater, which, which is on Victoria Island. Um, they're both uh, sort of 23 and 28 kilometers in diameter. So they're pretty large, but they're, they're quite old. Um, and, you know, I, I've always had a love for the outdoors and I love doing field work. And so I knew I wanted to continue to have that be a, an important part of my research to, to go to, you know, these isolated remote areas and just be, you know, an ex a true explorer. Um, Houghton, for example, Devon Island is, is the largest uninhabited island in the world. So it's really the base, and it's an Arctic desert. Um, the best thing about Arctic craters uh, is that they are set in the most uninhabited regions. They're far better preserved because you know, you're not building towns in them, for example. Uh, and it's like an explorer's dream to go to places where very few people will ever get to go and have the coolest rocks ever. And then you also get to um, you know, incorporate that link to moon or mars uh being in both you know isolation and then also being surrounded by crater rock uh, you know crater related rocks which we call impactites um, and of course if you ever look up at the moon you'll see that it's just covered in, in impact craters and so there's there's a connection not only just to the chemistry of the rocks but um well at least in the case of labrador but the chemistry is quite different in in the, in the islands in the arctic uh, but the but the type of rocks and the processes and the type of products that are produced during the impacts, those are very, very similar uh, to the moon and et cetera. Now, you mentioned that they are able to produce cool rocks. 
I think rocks are all cool, but what makes a rock specifically cool from sort of a lunar and geology related to planetary sciences, like facet, like what is the definition for a cool space rock? <laughs> I think any, any space rock, either rocks that come from space or in space <laughs> are cool. Um, but there's just, there's such a wide variety. Um, all space rocks are cool. <laughs> That's kind of it, yeah. The, the, the cool thing about space rocks is they still have so much mystery and they still have so much history of the solar system hiding, you know, inside the minerals, and inside how they formed and how they got here. And so um, there's so, still so much to discover. And that's sort of the big, the big draw too, is that um, it's the unexplored, right? You know, when a meteorite, for example, let's call it the, the real space rocks, you know, that, that impact the earth. And uh, let's say a meteorite that um, we, we discover, we're going to find out what kind of meteorite it is. And then you have so many questions. Where in the solar system did it come from? Did it come from the moon? Did it come from Mars? Did it come from the asteroid belt? Okay, if it's in the asteroid belt or it's part of the moon, what's its composition? What minerals are there? Why are they there? If it came from, so if often um, most meteorites that hit the earth that come from moon or Mars, the only way for them to get here is if there's first an impact on the moon and that ejects material into space and then it hits the earth. So then it's part of two different impact uh, events and it has the history of two impacts events in it. And so they're usually really unique rocks. Um, sometimes there's, they're melted. Sometimes, you know, they're very rich in metals. Sometimes they're, they're very uh, rich in carbon. Um, and so they each have a, like a little piece of history and we keep trying to pull out as much as possible to explain, you know, how, how the earth formed, how the early solar system came to, came to be. And um, a lot of that information came from space rocks. And so again, this idea that a meteorite could have the sort of two impacts that you can sort of see in the history of that rock. Are you able to tell much about the first impact that would have maybe sort of sent that rock ejected like out first or is it just, we can see that clearly there was one impact that led to this rock being ejected and it made its way to earth or more to it than that? That would be a really difficult thing to do to really separate, you know, when you're looking at the, let's say the melting or the, or things that have deformed in the rock, which impact it came from. Usually, usually probably be from the first one though, because, um, the very first impact, it has to be a large enough impact to be able to have ejected this large rock into space, which means it was in a significant size, you know, that, that came up. Um, and it's usually some portion that melted. Um, but the impact, you know, when we pick up a, a meteorite that actually survives an impact on Earth, they're usually smaller because most of the larger impacts, let's say so um, things larger than, you know, a couple of tens of meters, they don't they don't tend to survive the impact. They get completely vaporized or melted and you know, become part of the, the new rocks that are formed in, in the process. And so if there's any major you know, melting or shock evidence, it's probably from the first impact, just because, you know, it, like for Sudbury, for example, there are no meteorites from the Sudbury impact, but it was probably a very large object that impacted, right? On the order of you know, 10 to 20 kilometers wide so and there's nothing left out but there is signatures in the rock that you can get hints of what it was made up but you're not going to pick up a single piece um, just because there's just too much too too high an energy impact now we talked about sort of the difference between the meteorite impact 
sites uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, and the Canadian Arctic. But what are the deciding factors into choosing one meteoric impact site versus another? So each crater is very, very different. Um, you know, on Earth, there are about 200 craters uh, that, that we know of. There, once upon a time, there were far more. Uh, but, you know, because we have very active geological processes like erosion, oceans covering things, you know, it's a lot harder to find them. Um, and so each crater is, you know, it's very different. It's got a different size, age, you know, comes from a different region. It might have impacted different types of rocks, different potential connections to the Earth's history or the geologic history. And so a prime example of this is the Chicxulub impact in Mexico and in the, in the Yucatan Peninsula, which led to the mass extinction of dinosaurs and, and other large mammals 66 million years ago. You know, that impact, studying that crater answered a lot of our questions. We found a much large, like a really large crater. And then bit by bit, we got more pieces of evidence, different researchers all combining their information for us to finally come to the conclusion that, hey, this lines up the timing the age of this lines up with the timing of this other extinction that we're, you know, that, that um, you know, paleontologists and the people are looking at the rock better saying, this is, there's an extinction at this time, this crater, this impact happened about the same time. These are probably linked. And then, you know, we found more and more evidence to, to confirm our suspicions. So how do we choose uh, to study depends on the question we're trying to answer and what still hasn't been done. Uh, you know, impact cratering is still pretty young field of geology. Um, like, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it just started kind of, kind of um, to get its wheels greased. Uh, but many of them, many of the impact craters of those 200 I mentioned, they're not accessible. Uh, they're either other, under the ocean, buried in sediment or water. Uh, Miss Dastin in Labrador, the one I mentioned, actually is really well preserved, but there is a giant lake in the middle. So some of, some of it's not accessible. Um, and that's one of the more that's one of the better places to go for impact craters on the earth. Uh, there's one, there's a recent impact structure in Germany and there's a giant town in the middle of it, <laughs> you know, and, and it's all, it's agricultural lands around it and people are farming. And so you have to go knocking on doors. Do you mind if I go in your yard? That sort of thing. So it's a very different, uh, you know, choosing Arctic craters, for example, uh, we're also on indigenous lands and, you know, there's a different process to get access there. Um, but there's no one, you know, there's no one, living there and there's there's no structures built on it it's not and there's no forests covering it there's no jungle that you have to get through um so so that's definitely taken into account um and then other other craters they're you know they're eroded down where there's almost nothing left uh or or by glaciers or water etc or deformed by mountain building like the one in Sudbury so Sudbury it used to be a crater that's, you know, maybe two to 250 kilometers in diameter. And now that's like this, it's like this jelly bean shaped thing <laughs> that's about 60 kilometers in diameter uh, because it, it impacted during a time when there was uh, mountains being formed in that same spot. So really interesting. It depends on, it depends on what you're trying to answer. So, so the, other, the other thing with um, some of the questions you could ask when it comes to impact cratering. Uh, a lot of craters host economic deposits like at Sudbury, you know, it's the biggest mining camp in the country. Um, and craters also make a great habitat for life in a variety of ways. They have hydrothermal systems that form afterwards. Um, it's a very heated event, let's say. And so you, uh, it's actually suggested, you know, it could be a potential environment for the origins of life, 
and it's an environment we want to look at to search for life on other planets. And I can tell you the last two missions that we've sent to Mars, the Curiosity rover and Perseverance rover, they both landed in impact craters. Um, and if you know we're going back to the moon, we're almost definitely going to land on or in, like in or just outside an impact crater because the moon is just covered in craters. So what are science lo scientists looking for? You know, we want to understand the processes uh, involved in how, you know, how the impact occurred, what rocks were formed, what implications can we draw out uh, of what we find. Um, and, and of course, you know, asteroids and comets, they still present a danger, however rare today. And so to be prepared, we kind of want to understand, you know, what's going to happen, you know, with this size an object is coming at us or, you know, what are, what are the consequences of, of an impact? What's the history? You know, what, what can we tell what those consequences are by looking at impacts in the past? Now, there's all the different factors that go into choosing the sites, depending on what research we're trying to find, what maybe hasn't been done yet. But when you're actually looking at the impact craters, what are the things you're looking for, aside from just how the rocks maybe showed up there, what signs of an impact were there? Are there specific things that you're looking for, or does that change based on sort of expedition to expedition? That's expedition to expedition. And even on a single expedition, let's say we have, you know, we've had up to 20 people with us but usually it's more like four to six people um each one of those people are, are have a different goal i have a different thesis right um so i can tell you what as an example what i did for my phd so my particular field of study is looking at two the basically the new rocks that are formed during an impact so you have this really high temperature really high pressure uh event because you've got all this kinetic energy that just smacks into the surface of the earth and you know, huge shock wave. So it goes from really high pressure to really low pressure. The rocks are completely changed and melted, vaporized, uh, brecciated, so broken up, fractured. And in that process, there's a huge volume of rock that is melted. And so whatever rocks were there beforehand, the chemistry of those rocks, and some of them, you know, they might've been, you might've had, um, you know, Canadian shield, which is overlain by sediments, which is overlain by et cetera, et cetera. In my case, um, it, was, it was just that. It was basically these Precambrian um, metamorphic gneiss, these gneisses, um, kind of like your fancy granite countertop with the swirls in it. Um, <laughs> and then, and then um, sediments over top, which included limestones. And so we've got this really... Um, carbonate rich rocks and then these really silicate rich rocks and so the melted product it it's it's so hot when it melts it melts everything and it mixes everything together and it forms a totally new rock and it's those new rocks where i'm like hmm how did this form um you know what what minerals produce are produced out of this um out of this melt uh, which which minerals precipitate or or crystallize out of this melt so you've got that new type of rock because it was literally there's just Think of it as a pool of molten, molten rock, like lava, and then it comes solidifies and it solidifies. And then it's also very turbulent. You know, when it's formed, that that body of liquid rock is moving and it's picking up all of the broken up rocks. And so it's not going to be completely homogeneous. And so tracking, you know, what chemistry the rock had and how the different rocks that were there before contributed to it. That's part of what I was looking at. And then there's another type of rock. Once that whole process is, you know, everything, the, the dust settles and the impact crater is sort of 
in its semi-final uh, form, um, you know, and the temperature and the pressures are starting to come down, the, there's still heat from this pool of, of melt um, that heats up the groundwater that's existing in the area, heats up that groundwater, that groundwater then circulates in that newly fractured, porous, permeable rock. It dissolves uh, some of the minerals in, and then this like brine gets to circulate, it, it's hot, right? It's circulating, it's dissolving much of stuff. And then as the whole system cools, as, as the, you know, the, that melt becomes rock, um, and the whole system cools over, you know, it could be hundreds to thousands of years, it's precipitating new minerals, and we call those hydrothermal minerals because it came from the hot water. And those new minerals, that's uh, often the minerals that are economically, um, you know, they become economic resources. They form these, you know, beautiful crystals in voids and bugs and veins. And so I was trying to um, explore what minerals formed, how they formed, how many, how many stages you know, and how long did that system last? How long was it hot? You know, it could be it could be a hundred years, or it could be ten thousand years. Um, and so I was looking at um, tiny details within those minerals to figure out the distribution of the temperature and the distribution of the type of minerals that we got in the weird chemistry that was impacted. So, is there sort of a rule of thumb then, based on location and maybe the um, the makeup of the rocks in terms of being able to guess approximately how long that cooling process happened or is it just sort of we have to make a, an educated guess every time is there a rule of thumb or it's a, a little bit more of a science to it it's a bit of both so um there's a bit of science to it but the the number you get is still you know an estimate and it's probably an estimate with a very large error <laughs> but there's certain things that you can say you know it was definitely hot until this time so you get you get little bits and pieces of pieces of the information, and then you just have to interpret as the best you can with the little bits of evidence that we have. Um, so, if, for example, um, you know, there's one mineral that's calcite. I knew that when it formed, it had to have formed between um, like 80 and 120 degrees Celsius, or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers, but let's just let's just assume that that was the case. Um, so I knew that at some stage. That, that it was that hot, right? Um, in the case of Houghton, they don't have the minerals present that I could both give you the temperature and the age of the minerals being formed. But Sudbury is actually the best dated hydrothermal system on the planet. Um, because of the minerals present, they were able to uh, pull out information to say, hey, this was, this was actually hot for over like a million years, which is really cool. But it was much bigger crater. <laughs> yeah, much bigger crater. And Sudbury just seems to be sort of the unsung hero of this episode, not realizing sort of <laughs> as a little kid just how scientifically maybe important Sudbury was. It was just a cool place to go and pick blueberries with my grandparents. <laughs> now you want to go back, right? <laughs> of course. I always I always want to go to Sudbury. I'm always up for a trip, but I'll have a new appreciation for the topography the next time I'm there. <laughs> Now, the research that you did, how are the findings from this research and other researchers that go up to these impact craters applied to Canadian aerospace pursuits? Uh, so that's kind of twofold. Um, so my, my work on analog missions, those simulated space missions, they're really meant to 
apply, you know, all, all of the things that we did we were meant to do to take the lessons that we learned and apply them to real missions. Um, you know, I was ecstatic when the Artemis program in 2019 was announced and we're going back to the moon. And I was finally like, yes, we can actually use what we learned and, and give it to somebody who will apply it. And, and we did just that, um, you know, so but that could include anything. You know, we we did so many things, but that could include anything like, you know, why an instrument that we've chosen works best on a rover for a certain type of rock to analyze or um, what types of tools are, do, does an astronaut really need to carry to, to get the geology they need to do done on the moon? Or how many scientists do you really need in mission control? You know, is, is two too few? Yes, it is. Is 50 too many? Yes, it is. But it depends, you know, at one time, you, you need the big range. So, you know, you're, you're testing out all sorts of things and you can pull out little pieces of information. There are so many analog missions, you know, done all over the world and combined uh, we'll, we'll get a lot of the information that we need. And of course we have other real missions that we also learn lessons from. So um, all of it comes together in the end. The work on impact craters is important because, you know, in terms of aerospace, both rovers on the moon where Canada is involved are currently exploring craters. Um, so choosing a landing site, you know, where to land on the moon or Mars, whether it's for a crewed mission or a robotic mission, uh, it's usually going to involve cratering in some way and exploring uh, that that area on Mars or beyond. You're going to need a base knowledge in impact cratering, the processes and the products to be sure, you know, what you're going to find there um, when you do find the rocks. And, you know, I can, I'll tell you now that impact cratering, like I said, it's a young field. It's not a, a common sort of path in the geology world. They get, you know, you get a slight intro to it during your undergrad, but most most geologists um, are not super familiar with, with the, the detailed geology of impact cratering. Um, so it's really kind of a niche of the field. And you need that base knowledge if you're going to be exploring a cratering, a very cratered region, which is anywhere on the moon. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's easily applicable uh, in, in those terms. And then again, uh, those, that hydrothermal system that I mentioned, producing new minerals um, and uh, that system where it's you've got water, it's it's hot, and uh, it's actually got a lot of nutrients there. That's the type of place that forms a potential habitat for microbial life. That's why you know that's one of the places that we want to go and explore and say, hmm, is there life on on the moon? Probably not. Is there life on Mars? Or was there once life on Mars? Maybe. Maybe this is a good place to start looking. I can definitely see why there would be a benefit in that work and the fact that we have locations on earth that we can, I guess, replicate, simulate those experiences so that when you are on a lunar surface or a Martian surface, it's not just all new. We have some sense of how we're doing this. And you've led analog missions to Labrador and the Canadian Arctic and have trained Canadian astronauts, Joshua Kutrick and Jeremy Hansen and NASA astronaut, Matthew Dominic in field geology in preparation for the lunar expeditions. What are you trying to impart on these astronauts when you are with them during these experiences? What are you trying to teach them about lunar or Martian geolo uh, geology? Um, so I gave the example of one of the questions that we want to answer on the moon is that the South Pole Aiken Basin is the largest and oldest basin on the moon and in the solar system as far as we know so far. So we use the South Pole Aiken Basin's um, age or our assumed age as um, 
to, to calibrate all the other ages in the solar system because it's the oldest. And so um, the ages that we do know for sure come from the rocks that we've sampled from Apollo uh, return samples. And so we, you know, most of those samples are on the order of four to 4.2 billion years old. Um, and, you know, South Pole Lake and Basin is supposed to, this should be older because it's the oldest terrain, you know. We know, you know, an, a terrain that is full of craters um, is older than a terrain that has less craters. That's the general idea that we apply that rule of this, of superposition of, of impacts um, across all of the surfaces in the solar system. And because the South Pole Lake and Basin is the oldest, you know, if we had the age for that, then we can adjust all of our assumptions for every other surface in the solar system. So it's really important that we get the right rock, essentially, uh, so that we can take it from that rock, the information that we need to answer that, you know, this pivotal question that'll answer a lot of, and that, you know, if we had that age, it would, it will bring us a lot more questions too, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's kind of the fun of it, but, <laughs> but it would answer some big ones. Um, and it would definitely put, um, it would put things in line. It would make all of our other assumptions um, more accurate. Now, thinking about some of the original Apollo landings, that they were all done in the region of the Sea of Tranquility, and with the South Pole Aiken Basin, are there other parts of the moon aside from the South Pole Aiken Basin that would also really, I guess, yield a lot of worthwhile, quote unquote, information? Like, are there other really interesting parts of the moon? There are a lot of really interesting parts of the moon because, you know, I mean, we landed six times in different spots, but the moon is a really big place. So you can imagine if you landed on the Earth in six individual spots and you only explored, you know, <laughs> like a kilometer, uh, you, you, you get a lot of information, but you don't get the whole picture. It's kind mm -hmm. of like a pinhole view, right? Um, so there's so many places that we could go to the moon and explore. Um, and the South Pole Lake Basin, it's, most of it is actually on the far side of the moon where we have not landed, at least a person has not landed yet. Uh, China has a, a rover on the far side and it's been exploring for a little while, but um, yeah, we haven't walked on the far side of the moon yet. And we haven't walked near the South Pole, which has got some really, uh, there are a lot of craters, there are a huge region around the South Pole that has some really interesting stuff. Like, um, so one of the, the main reasons we want to go back is to look for water ice in the permanently shadowed regions. So there's these, these craters at the South Pole that never see the sun, they never see the light of day. Um, and so because of that, because in the, in the day, like our, our, when the sun is shining on the moon, the temperatures are boiling hot. They're over hundred degrees Celsius. Uh, and then in shadow, they're negative, uh, you know, 170 degrees Celsius. And then in the permanently shadowed regions where it never ever shines, it's like minus 230, something like that Celsius. It's some of the coldest spots in the whole solar system. And because of that, the water molecules are able to sort of get concentrated there. We've, we've measured these with orbital data. Um, we're pretty confident there's definitely some water there. We just don't know how much. We know it's in the form of ice, obviously, because it's freezing. Um, and so we want to go and explore this, this water because water, um, if you're going to go back to the moon, which we plan to do in a sustainable way, you know, we're going to set up a habitat, have a sustainable presence on the moon, we're going to need water. 
We can use that water for drinking. We can break it into oxygen and hydrogen, oxygen for breathing and both for rocket fuel. Hydrogen, same thing, also can be used for fuel. You could recombine them to make a fuel cell. Um, so water ice as a resource on the moon is uh, a, a high, hot topic and a, and a high priority target. Uh, so that's definitely one of the reasons we want to do the South Pole, in addition to all of the geological information that we can get, um, and the South Pole Basin being one of them. Now, through all the geological information that you have, I guess, been able to determine so far and use so far in learning about our universe, is there life outside of the Earth? <laughs> um, so we have not found it yet, but that doesn't mean that it's not out there. And um, and that's and I guarantee we're going to keep looking, um, whether we find it or not. Years to come, we will continuously keep looking. But here's here's the thing, at least in my mind, we are you know one planet of eight larger planets orbiting our sun, and our solar system is but one of millions in our galaxy. And our galaxy of, is just one galaxy among millions and billions of others and so there are and you know we've we've discovered something like well over 4,000 exoplanets planets that are orbiting other stars in our galaxy and that means you know and that basically the assumption is that most stars that you see in the sky and most of the stars that you can actually see you can there are infinitely more out there you just you can't see them with the naked eye um, with all those millions of stars out there and those millions of planets it's statistically unlikely that we're the only place ever to have life. And so I'm sure it's out there. Do I think we'll ever reach it if it's far away? Probably not, um, at least not soon because we just don't have the technology to travel that far. Um, but if it's on Mars, maybe in bacterial form or it used to be living on Mars or Venus that you know, in their mm -hmm. past were more like Earth, uh, could we find fossilized life? I think that's, you know, a reasonable assumption and something worthy of looking into. Now, to draw you into a larger debate, should Pluto be considered a planet? <laughs> uh, when I was young, Pluto was a planet. I grew up, there were nine planets. Um, but the thing is, if you include Pluto as a planet, that means you actually are adding five additional planets. Pluto, it looks like a planet. It's, it's, you know, it's spherical, it's got mountains and glaciers, it's amazing. Now New Horizons, the mission that just, you know, uh, imaged this, got up, got up close and imaged it just a, a few years ago, showing this beautiful picture of, you know, Pluto and Sharon. Um, even Sharon itself is like, very planet-like. <laughs> However, there are a lot larger bodies uh, in the solar system, you know, some of Jupiter's moons and things. Um, and you got to set the bar somewhere. So I get that they just, you know, they, they changed the definition of what a planet was and then Pluto got excluded. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it's still a dwarf planet. It can still be included on, amongst all of the wondrous celestial bodies in our solar system. Um, you know, it, it's, it got treated as if it were a demotion just because, you know, the children growing up in school, it's not one of the initial terms that they hear, they learn about. Um, so that is a little bit saddening because I loved Pluto growing up because it was like the baby, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's now everyone's Mercury's kid brother planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I adore Pluto. Um, but you know what? The name doesn't matter. The name doesn't matter. 
you can still love Pluto and and uh, yeah, because there's other there's five dwarf planets in our solar system, and so if you if you add Pluto back, you got Adam. Well, I guess I'm adding five more planets then because I still choose to firmly <laughs> believe that Pluto should be a planet. I grew up with it as a planet. It needs to stay as a planet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Previously, you were the operations manager for the Can-Moon mission. What was the purpose of this mission and what was it like to coordinate these operations? All right, so Can-Moon uh, was in 2019 and the, the purpose of any space analog mission, again, is to prepare for real space missions. So in this case, uh, it was a mission to the moon. Um, we had a really long specific of objectives you know, for operations and scientific objectives, but mainly it was, um, how do we execute a rover mission to the moon where we have to operate 24 hours a day with um, you know, a minimal communications delay? So what I mean by that is rovers on the moon today it actually takes, you know, 10 to 20 minutes to get a signal to Mars. And then, you know, the rover will do whatever. And then it takes another 20 minutes for that signal to come back. But on the moon, that's not the case. We can, you know, the, the time delay, at least if it's on the near side of the moon, is negligible. Um, you know, it's near real time. You can send it right away and get information back pretty much right away. And so that changes how operations are run. It changes how mission control will talk to the rover. It changes how you you book people in their shifts for mission control. It changes the decision-making process for what the rover is going to do when. Also, um, the, the other schedule is the moon, wherever you land, at least if it's, you know, if you're in the anywhere near the equator or the mid-latitudes, it's 14 days of Earth days of daytime, and then you have 14 days of nighttime. So you're running 24 hours a day, for 14 days and then you're off for 14 days. Um, and that's again, very different from Mars operations. And so the, the objective of this mission was to figure out how to run a mission like that on that schedule. Um, and so what we did was we had a mission control at Western University and we sent a rover team to Lanzarote, Spain, which is actually an island in the Canary Islands, one of the Canary Islands. And we sent a team there. And the reason we chose that location is because it's a volcanic island and it had um, the, the volcanic rocks. They're really similar to the basaltic rocks on the moon, uh, some of the volcanic rocks on the moon. So the lunar mare, uh, they're actually ancient volcanic, the dark stuff on the moon, they're ancient volcanic lava flows. And so that, that was the sort of the environment that we were trying to simulate. Um, so we were learning real science about the actual volcanic rocks in Lanzarote. So we were applying real, you know, we were taking real analyses with the instruments on the rover um, and sending those back, making real science decisions. And then, um, so the, the setup was we had that team there and then in mission control, we actually had about 40 people in mission control, ranging from postdocs, graduate students, undergraduate students. Um, so that's that's sort of the, the baseline setup, um, and they ranged from scientists to engineers and psychologists, um, a wide variety of people. Some people were, you know, veteran analog mission people, and we put them in leadership positions. And other people it was their very first time, and they were learning. And it was, you know, that's part of it. Part of the whole thing is to train, you know, the next generation of, of, um, you know, folks to, that will go into aerospace and do wonderful things. Uh, so being the mission operations manager, uh, it was intense. Uh, but it was very rewarding. I loved it. Um, I was responsible for 
planning the mission, making sure all the bits and pieces were executed, uh, starting with you know pre-mission training, uh, setting up the structure of how you know we started with how we wanted it to work, and then we would modify as the mission went along. Uh, when we actually ran the mission, it was two two weeks long, but it was months in the making. Um, and then of course you know field team rover, you're assigning all of the roles, making sure everybody knows what their role is and has the sort of the base knowledge to execute their role. Uh, and then, of course, I helped to organize some of the logistics, which had to be partly done in Spanish because it's Spanish island. Um, and then during the mission, the, um, the actual executing, you know, making all those decisions, run, you know, telling the rover what to do, I got to sit back with, you know, with my feet up because everyone's roles were assigned. And, the, you know, there was a science leader. And then there's what we call a planning lead, but it's kind of like the, the rover team in mission control that communicated different, directly with the rover. And they, you know, there are all these subgroups and they all had their leads and, and they did their job wonderfully. And so I got to watch the mission unfold, but as it was unfolding, really my, my job was at that point was troubleshooting uh, and making sure everything, everyone had what they had needed. And um, uh, so like that came, you know, as simple as, is the lunch order coming in today? Or if for some reason uh, there was a communication issue, which is usually the problems, um, you know, I was the only person who could verbally speak directly to the rover team was me because you had to have somebody outside the simulation, right? Because if you're talking directly to your rover team, then, you know, that's not normal. You can't actually call your rover in a, in a real space mission mm -hmm. scenario, right? Uh, so mostly what I was doing was troubleshooting. Okay, there's a miscommunication. Oh, no, uh, that's not exactly what they asked you for. You know, and just clarify, making sure everyone's on the same page and, and that everything ran smoothly at that point. It was a big success um, and it was it was good fun. I mean, it sounds like it would have been really fun. And then ultimately that idea of, OK, we have two weeks of daylight and light to actually get stuff done. And then we have two weeks where it's just going to be sort of eternal night. Um, trying to develop that schedule. What were some of the findings related to that? How were the people sort of managed to, I guess, most effectively use that two weeks? Yep. Um, well, it was more like, so we have 40 people to run mission control, but you have the operations where, you know, I told you 24 hour operations. There was also a big time delay between what was actually daytime in Lanzarote and daytime in Eastern Canada and <laughs> like Eastern standard time Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so shift, shift started uh, at like a very weird time in Canada and I'm like gaping on the actual time, but um, we started, you know, midday, I think it was 1 PM and then we'd go into the early hours of the morning or maybe it's the opposite. Anyways, our shifts were opposite. So what we did, we ended up doing was we broke uh, 24 hours up into three shifts and um, we experimented with how long those shifts should be. So we had one shift, we called it the ghost shift because we just didn't have enough people to fill three whole shifts and fill all of the roles. So we had a ghost shift and then we had other shifts where um, I think we tried a five and a half hour shift and then an eight hour shift. Oh no, a 10 hour shift. That's what it was. We started the very first week. Everyone was all together on a 10 hour shift and that was it. And then week two, we broke that into two shifts and overlapped them by half hour. So you'd come in, you'd read the, all of the reports from the night before to see where the rover was and what was going on. And then you just do your shift for five and a half hours. Another shift would come in 
you'd have a half hour to explain to the person that's taking over your role what happened. And then there was like a group meeting. And then the next shift took over and those guys went home. And that in real life, you know, that does happen that way. There are shift changes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which changes as the mission goes on. But And so we had a, an experiment. We, we got to experiment on what it's like to take over your shift and just read notes on what happened before and then compare that to having an actual person there to explain to you, you know, the, the feeling in the room and whatever. And we learned, you know, if you're going to only have the documentation, this is what you definitely have to need. You have to have pictures. You have to have figures. You have to have mm-hmm. people documenting what's going on every second of the way. Uh, because, you know, even the leads, you know, they're not there the whole time. You know, you, you might have a very knowledgeable person, but they show up and they don't know what the rover did the day before. They're going to be really confused and be like, why is the rover in this weird position? You know, um, that's a- <laughs> So, so it was, uh, yeah, things like that. I'd say that just sounds like the experience of a lifetime to have been part of that team, uh, even in Eastern Canada, let alone being on Lanzarote. It just sounds like what a unique experience to find yourself in and God, how lucky everyone involved would have been to have had that opportunity. Yeah. Um, oh, I had a ball and of course this was, uh, I don't, I don't know what was maybe 13th or 14th large, uh, analog mission wearing different hats, but um, everyone is every single one was different and this one was um, you know definitely one of my favorites and uh, we had just such an amazing team and a team from across Canada too that that flew in some of them some people flew in from across the country just to to be part of that two-week uh, mission. So as you mentioned you are the science advisor for the Canada Aviation and Space Museum. How did you find yourself in this role and what does an average day look like? Ah okay well um, as science advisor My new major role is as sort of an outreach representative. Um, So I do a lot of outreach activities. Um, I do a lot of scientific support. So giving scientific advice or scientific input on the programs and the exhibits uh, that that the museums um, are developing. So we're actually, so we're one of three museums, which is part of the Ingenium Corporation. So there's the Museum, Canada Aviation and Space Museum, Canada Science and Technology Museum and the Food and Agriculture Museum. So I get to contribute to mostly aviation space, but um, when needed, we all come together for the, for all three museums as well. So that's really interesting. And I get to learn a lot from each museum has its uh, own science advisor. And then I get to collaborate, you know, um, form partnerships for the museum, industry or government, academia. And then I actually um, occasionally get to, to be the spokesperson for the museum, which is so that's, that encompasses the sort of the titles of the job, but my everyday is very different from week to week. So this past week, um, I met with colleagues at work to discuss public programs for the museum for the summer. I was on a panel uh, with folks from MDA and the Canadian Space Agency to discuss how to build the city on the moon for a youth challenge uh, competition called Future City, run by Engineers Canada. Uh, I, I recently ran a bunch of classroom workshops where we did this scavenger hunt using real satellite data from Planet. Um, and I'm, you know, I've been working on this article for our um, our website's blog page. It's uh, called Channel, and I'm working on writing an article. I just wrote an article about the Hungatanga uh, Hunga Taipei eruption that was seen by satellites uh, on January 15th. So yeah, it really differs from day to day. I jump jump around quite a lot. <laughs> no one, if anyone has had the fortune of going to any of those muse- museums, but particularly the Canada Aviation and Space Museum, 
there's very much so in the sort of the, the space portion of the museum, which is a little bit smaller, but if you know where to look, it's, it's there. And that is the room that to me is just where all the science is. And you see all the different ways that they're really trying to, I think, engage and promote aerospace careers. I find that when I go there, there's, if I remember correctly, there was some exhibit about like, do you have what it takes to be a Canadian astronaut? And of course, I as an adult was like, oh, I obviously need to take this assessment meant for children and prove it how how effective I am at, at this assessment. But I think part of it is really to also just inspire that next generation of Canadian youth that want to get into aviation and aerospace. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we have really two. So there's the two sort of, um, sort of space-driven exhibits are Life in Orbit and Health in Space. So Life in Orbit is, it's got like... Um, uh, like a mock-up of part of the International Space Station, and then there, um, and, you know, all sorts of things to explain, you know, what astronauts go through in their day-to-day lives there. And then um, health in space—it's got highlighting uh, David Saint Jacques' recent um, mission to the International Space Station, and it's got like a cool uh, cupola where you could take your picture next to the space. Anyways, it's I—it's I, really really nice, and, uh, really really well done. Um, but it, yeah, it is. It's on the second floor, so you kind of have to go find it. Unfortunately, because of the, those are the more sciencey exhibits, um, they're also the most interactive exhibits, and so they've been closed off during a good portion of the pandemic because they're like the touchy feely things. There's a lot of stuff where your kids can go in and touch and feel and you know interact with the screens and stuff. Um, so yeah, so but the rest of the museum, uh, that's the those are the only exhibits that are currently off off limits for now. They're going to open up again soon, I'm sure. Um, but the rest of the museum is wide open. We also do have uh, like a prototype, prototype uh, rover. Uh, there's lots of really cool things. We also have Canada Arm 1 and the first Canadian satellite prototype, Alouette. Um, and uh, we actually have one of the tires from the space shuttle, which is really cool. <laughs> it's hidden in the reserve hangar, um, but we do have a shuttle tire, which you can touch. Now, what is the most rewarding aspect of this role? Uh, I, you know, I think throughout my career, but again, you know, it just started again as I started this job. I've met so many wonderful people through this job and, and working with so many amazing, um, passionate, such an amazing, passionate team and getting to share my passion with, uh, for earth and planetary science with the public. You know, that, that really does it for me. You know, when you get, when you go into a classroom virtually, and you get those questions from that sixth grader that really make you think, work hard to give them an answer or the answers, the ones that I can't answer. And I have to go and look up and I get to learn something too. <laughs> you know, that's things like that. That's you know kind of my favorite part of this job. I also love the, the diversity of the job. Like I told you, you know, my, my day-to-day changes all the time and I'm a really dynamic type of person um, and I get to keep learning. And now, uh, you know, being new to really the aviation side, of, of the museum too. I'm learning so much about, you know, the different, the different things in our collection and Canada's history in aviation. Um, I'm still just starting to chip away at that and, and building my knowledge base there. And so I'm so happy to be able to just keep learning. No, it definitely sounds like the perfect role for a lifelong learner. <laughs> definitely. Yep. Now, what, in your opinion, is a hidden gem of the Canada Aviation and Space Museum's collection, aside from the space shuttle tire? <laughs> I was going to say, the space shuttle tire. Um, <laughs> well, something I can relate to. So, I mean, there's so many wonderful things in the museum. And to be honest, we have so much in our collection. I don't even know 
there's probably hidden gems I don't know exist um, because there's just there's a lot that is sort of you know back in the hangar or in other storage uh, facilities. So I'm still learning. But the one thing that I can really connect with is that, so I was explaining like when I went to Northern Labrador. When I went to the Canadian Arctic, there's one bush plane that we use to do everything, go everywhere, and that's the Twin Otter. So it's a de Havilland Canada DHC-6 Twin Otter, and our museum has the very first Twin Otter ever built. Uh, it's a sort of commuter utility aircraft, a dual um, turboprop airplane. Um, it's amazing. It is, it is the craziest. To, to see the stuff that this thing can do, and I've been on some pretty wild rides in a Twin Otter, um, I've landed on, they, they, they take off and land on such a really short strip of shrubs or like, like nothing. So the one place uh, in Northern Labrador, there, there are a couple of, we'll, we're calling them airstrips, but they're not really airstrips. They're like gravel bars. Um, one of them is an, a banana shaped esker with a hill off hmm. of one side. And so to take off, you, you, you know, they hit the gas and you're literally like turning a good 30 degrees and then you take off and you're already uh, tilted about 45 degrees so that you can go up without hitting the hill. <laughs> and, then, and then to land is equally interesting. Um, so I've seen them do some pretty, pretty wild things. And then you can also, I mean, to land in these places, they have these, they, they install tundra tires on them. They're really squishy. And so they, you know, like you're, you're taking off and landing on like a shrub field with boulders and they're like, that's eh, nothing. Um, they do do several flybys before they, they land that are nauseating to make sure there's no extra big boulder or extra big shrub to avoid um, each time. And, and the terrain changes, right? Because it might be months before they come back to the middle of nowhere. So uh, they definitely have to double check that. But they, they've also landed on you know, you can put floats or skis. It's the same aircraft that they used uh, in Antarctica too. So um, this Twin Otter that's at the museum, it's in the reserve hangar. It's hidden pretty well back there. Uh, but if you can, you can ask for a tour of the reserve hangar and you can go and check it out. But it's pretty cool. No, the, the Twin Otter is a workhorse of Canadian aviation. You can have them do just about anything. So in hearing you sort of describe, yeah, there was sort of this like, curved runway and a hill and we're already sort of canted just even uh, as soon as we're airborne. That, that sounds about right for a Twin Otter. I can see why having <laughs> that experience would sort of be endearing forever towards that plane. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, like, and you're also uh, taking off you're sitting in the very back of the plane, you know, you're only, there usually going to be four people and they only put up as many seats as there are people. And then all of your cargo is right at your feet, right? Under nets. And you see like ATVs and stuff. And if one hook comes, <laughs> like, anyways, it's, I, I'm accustomed to it now, but I remember the early days thinking, whoa. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not like flying at an airline. Yeah. And wear your earplugs, but um, it's it's quite an amazing aircraft. And uh, I also met like some amazing pilots that you know for year after years they're still flying the same plane in the same spot, um, and they're still very good humored. <laughs> now, who is someone in aviation or aerospace that you admire, and why? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I admire so many people. Uh, so many. So fortunate to be <laughs> surrounded in my career by all these admirable people. Um, well, maybe to, to link up some of the things we talked about, I could pick uh, maybe two people. So Raymond Francis, he's a, an, an, an engineer 
uh, and he did his PhD at Western University. And during some of those analog missions I was doing, um, we got to train him as a, an analog astronaut to learn to do geology. Of course, his background is in engineering. Now he's taken his experience in these analog missions and he got a job several years ago at the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA in Pasadena. And he's now on both the Curiosity and Perseverance rover teams and he fires lasers on Mars and he also helped to program the code that helps these rovers autonomously drive by themselves. Um, so, and he also has a private pilot's license and he flies, uh, he still flies back to Sudbury every year. <laughs> and, and he's taken me up for a ride in Cessna um, just for fun to get some more hours in. So, <laughs> um, so that would be one. And then the other uh, person would be Dr. Tanya Harrison, another good friend that did her PhD at Western. Um, you know, this is somebody who uh, put, got put up against a lot of adversity uh, through her process and through her career. And she also has um, a, like a disability and she's been successful and just pushed through uh, no matter what. And she now, she, she bounced around amazing jobs, but she's now um, director of, I can't remember the exact name, director of science strategy or something like that at Planet, the satellite company um, that I was doing those workshops with. Um, so she, and she goes, you know, she's spoken around the world. She's a, and she was also part of multiple, multiple um, Mars missions, actual missions. So she was on MAVEN. She took pictures of Mars every day for three years um, um, with the MAVEN spacecraft. And she was also part of uh, Curiosity mission for a little while too. So Mars planetary scientist, uh, she even has her email. It's like Tanya of Mars or something like that, or her, um, not email, but um, Twitter account is Tanya of Mars. And, uh, you know, I, she she always surprises me because I know that she's she struggles with her with you know um, physical issues, um, and she just always blows you away anytime she's there to give a speech. Or, and she's just and they're both Raymond and Tanya are just they're just wonderful people. No, I think you touched on sort of a point with uh, Dr. Raymond that in addition to all these different things, still finds time to just go up in a Cessna, has a private pilot license, and sort of take in and share the experience of aviation with other people. I think with both uh, Dr. Raymond and Tanya, it's this idea of being so passionate and enthusiastic about what they do and having sort of this uncanny ability to be able to share that enthusiasm and passion with others. Yep, absolutely. And yeah, they're, they're two people that are, are great at outreach. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and they love to share their passion and their um, they're supportive of everyone. Just encourage everyone to just do their best and and uh, live the best life. Now, speaking of support and sort of uh, maybe even mentorship, what importance do you place on mentorship in aviation and aerospace? Um, not just in aviation aerospace. I think any in any career path, you know, mentors are mentors are meant to be sounding boards. They're meant to impart wisdom and advice throughout your journey. And I think at any stage of your career, whether you're a student or a professional, um, that support is crucial. I can tell you that I, I still take advantage of that support whenever I can. Um, you know, I, I did my best because people always, you know, that I, people that I admired put their faith in me. You know, you give, you're given a task to do and they trust you to do it. And they don't, you know, they, they impart the confidence on you. So I think uh, that part of mentorship is, is absolutely crucial. crucial excuse me. Um, 
you know, even the most successful intelligent person has bad days, down days, especially these days. Uh, and you need that help to get you through, whether it's just a boost in confidence or, you know, to help you understand some complex scientific problem that you just can't work out, you know, on your own. No, I think you touched on an excellent point there being that the last couple of years have been very challenging for, for everyone. And at a time when maybe sort of connection and passion matter most, it, it is important to have those mentors to check in on you, regardless of what level or stage you are at in your uh, career. Yeah, absolutely. How do you hope your work influences and inspires the next generation of planetary scientists? Oh, well, um, <laughs> well you know, I, I hope that uh, I can encourage this next generation to, to aim higher and, and to do a better job than those th that came before. And uh, honestly, I'm just happy to, to be on this train and try and make a positive impact uh, and positive contributions towards, you know, not only Canada's efforts in space exploration, you know, advance our understanding, scientific understanding, um, but just make a positive impact on youth and get the general public excited and passionate and know how cool rocks in space are. You don't, you don't have to, you know, I, I'd love for, you know, to inspire youth to join the aerospace uh, community as, as a career, or, you know, if we could just get their interest and support, that's fantastic. You know, it's such a wonderful field of study and, and there's so many wonderful things that come out of aviation and aerospace, you know, technologies that are reapplied to benefit people on earth. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot to be excited about and to know. So I hope, I hope I can inspire people just uh, even to just have a little more interest in the field. Well, I can say having spoken with you over the last hour or so, even I, like I'm already more interested in all this. It's, I, I've forgotten how cool I thought lunar sciences and planetary sciences were. And so I would say even just in passing, being able to sort of have a conversation with you, mission accomplished. Like I'm, I'm already more enthusiastic about uh, lunar science and I will definitely be uh, looking into some of those sort of analog missions a little bit more. And if there's some nifty way that you can have like a complete civilian in person outside of all that, just glob on to one of those exercises. Yes, and I'm fist pumping right now. <laughs> Can't see. Now, what advice did you have for someone considering a career in planetary sciences? Uh, this is such a wonderful time to join the planetary science community because the aerospace industry is booming. There is a wide variety of opportunity out there, um, and there's something for everyone. You know, uh, planetary science in particular. You know, it ranges from geologists, whether that's field geologists or people that stay in the lab or remote sensing geologists that, you know, are the, the ones that are, um, that do their science from a distance, right? Geophysics, astrobiologists, you know, looking for life on other planets, cosmochemistry, there's, there's this wide field of science that can be applied to aerospace, um, you know, and developing science instruments for, for space exploration. Uh, working on space missions and so on. So there's there's such a wide variety of opportunity because we're heading back to the moon right now. There's other there's a lot of other missions going on. You know, there's Mars missions going on. Um, we're sending a quadcopter to Titan to explore. You know, to fly around um, Saturn's moon Titan. We're sending new missions to Venus. Uh, there's there's so many things going on. But Canada, in Canada specifically. We are heading back to moon and Canada has huge roles to play. We're going to send a rover. We're going to have some of our astronauts go to the moon. Um, and, and soon one of our astronauts will be uh, basically orbiting the moon, coming back. And so uh, we're going to continue to need 
scientists and engineers. And I can tell you there's a lot of aerospace companies that have several things listed on their job page right now saying, hey, we're looking for you. Um, so it's a, it's a great time. Um, and in the aviation industry too, although the pandemic has definitely stirred the pot a little bit, there's a lot of jobs to fill and or will be filled as soon as things sort of settle. You know, things, you know, in the air traffic control industry, for example, we have a new exhibit actually at the museum um, uh, called Eyes on the Skies, Managing Air Traffic in Canada. Um, and it was um, sponsored by NAVCAN. Uh, really interesting exhibit. I, I'm learning a lot. Um, so there's a lot of jobs, not just, you know, pilot, but there's a lot of jobs in the aviation industry and, and they're going to need people soon. So it's a, it's a good timing if, if that's your interest and I hope it is. No, and sort of the way you've described the planetary sciences, it sounds like if you have an interest in something, there's a way to do it within planetary sciences. Absolutely. You can apply just about any basic physical science to planetary science. If you're interested in physics, you could do astrophysics, like, you know, um, orbital dynamics. And uh, if you're interested in geophysics, you could do uh, there's a lander on Mars right now called InSight. It's measuring earthquakes on Mars. It's it's got a seismometer on it, and there are geophysicists, you know, working off on Mars. Um, they're astrobiology, you know, looking for microbes. Uh, we are zapping Martian uh, Martian rocks with a Raman spectrometer, uh, with a laser and Raman spectrometer, looking for organic molecules. And you know, we need chemists and we need biologists looking through those. Um, I don't know, I could go on and on, but there's so many different uh, ways that you could take the science that you love and apply it to the space. Well, it definitely sounds like sort of a hot industry to look into and gosh, who knows what the potential will be and where exactly we're going with that. Absolutely. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career so far? I think my favorite moments are, uh, and I could think of many but just uh, it's more of a feeling is when you're on one of those giant expeditions and you are cut off from the rest of the world and everyone with you you're dependent on your teammates to survive in this in this environment and you just you know you look out on the landscape and it's just absolutely beautiful and there's no one that can email you or call you on their cell phone because <laughs> you, you know you're not reachable um, and just enjoying that um, that peacefulness and then at the same time, being having that feeling that you're exploring and you're learning about the rocks for the first time, I, I think that that's the feeling, the, the memory that I have um, that comes to mind. And then also, actually, in the lab, when I'm, um, I remember the one day where uh, I made a thin section. So I cut a little slab of a rock that we drilled in the Arctic. We, we, did, we took these cores um, about 15 meters down in the middle of the crater. Uh, and exposed a type of the core was basically a type of rock we had not seen yet in this crater. It's the first time, and it's, the, it's still the only samples that we have of this part of the crater. Uh, and I got to take those back and slice them up and put them under the microscope. And we found an, uh, a new texture in an, a mineral we knew was present, but a new texture in this mineral that didn't make sense or, or finally explained some things that we you know, wanted to... Um, that we were trying to sort out before. Anyways, it was kind of like the key texture in this mineral. And it was that moment of, oh my God, what? Is that what I think it is? And then you go and check and you're rushing and then just that feeling of the, uh, 
the adrenaline that's rushing as you make this true scientific discovery that that's awesome too I mean how would you talk being in the room during a sort of ground literally groundbreaking scientific discovery I mean that you you wouldn't be able to top that <laughs> oh um I mean I still have uh, many years left in my career <laughs> maybe maybe I can you know we'll, we'll see I hope so <laughs> it was it's pretty awesome to be to be part of scientific discoveries now before we wrap up today where can our listeners find you on social media Sure. Um, so for, for the most part, for, um, let's say the business end, I, I'm on Twitter under plan, at Planetary Cass. Um, and uh, my Facebook and Instagram accounts are more like personal accounts. But if you want to find me, I, I tweet about uh, rocks and space things uh, all the time at Planetary Cass. We will be sure to have that link in the episode description for our listeners. Dr. Cassandra Mariel, thank you so much for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.